Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Being Between Chats. Karma and I had the absolute pleasure of talking to Matilda Delator for this episode of the Between Chats. Matilda began Conversations from Calais, an Instagram archive of conversations between refugees and volunteers. The accounts are laid out on white paper in a plain black font and have been printed out and plastered onto more than 60 cities in five continents and have been translated into numerous languages. You looked up and said that the sky was beautiful today. A poster reads, I replied that yes, it was. In that moment, we were just two people looking up at the sky. For Matilda, these posters are a way of bearing witness for the thousands of displaced people stuck in Calais and trying to reach the UK, whose voices are so often silenced or ignored. Matilda is a powerhouse and left us feeling so inspired. We hope you enjoy. I'm sure that you've been asked this question a million, million times before, <laughs> but perhaps you could take us a little bit back um, on how your journey with Calais in general started. Yeah, sure. So um, I think so I'm I'm based in London, um, but I'm I'm French. So I think I had heard about the Calais jungle and kind of refugees displacement for a while, um, but I never really engaged with it. Um, and then before starting my MA, I decided that um it's kind of when a lot of the crossings were happening so the jungle the Kelly jungle was dismantled in 2016 I went two years later as I went in 2018 so there was a lot of um a lot of conversations and I think it kept coming up and you know when like you hear of something and then suddenly you hear and see it everywhere so that's kind of what happened and I, I was speaking to my mom about it and we both came to the conclusion that it was ridiculous that we were geographically so close. I go back to Paris and France really often and like literally cross through Kelly so many times with the Eurostar, but I had never really been or, or wondered what it was or who was there or what was really happening. So um, my mom and I decided that we would go for 10 days to volunteer and to see and to I think to help in any way we could, but also to really try and understand more. I think I was really led there by curiosity um, because I, I, I think I didn't feel that much of a need to help. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but like I because I didn't know what was happening. I just for me, it was something that was so far away and I couldn't comprehend it. So I was very curious to understand what was happening. And, and we, I went there for my, with my mom for 10 days and we volunteered for a local organization. And um, we volunteered in a warehouse where you had kind of different donations coming in, food, clothes, shoes, tents, sleeping bags, everything. And had and, and it's still like this now has like small organizations that do different things so one is going to be doing the cooking one is going to do the tent distribution all of that so we we volunteered and um I I think I was so confused and so overwhelmed that it it was until I got back to London that I think I started digesting kind of what was happening and and the situation that was there and how many displaced people were there and how the the situation was and how I can believe that it was in France and so close to London and I couldn't believe it was happening in my country um and so from that I I after that I started my MA and I, I started going back to volunteer kind of whenever I had um time off um and I I'm I'm a designer my background is in design and I was doing an MA in graphic design and I guess I 
always when I was there, I was, you know, volunteering and helping in any way that was needed. But I was always, always thinking about like, I was writing a lot. I was drawing a lot. I was, I think, always in the back of my mind thinking, how is there a way that I can use my skills, which are as a designer, to be able to kind of show what, what I'm experiencing there? Um, so that's kind of how it started. Um, and that was my first, yeah, I guess, way of starting to think about how to come up with a project um, that would talk about Kelly. Um, yeah. It's so impactful as well, because it's, I don't know, just the fact that it's, just, you know, often just a white piece of paper with like really plain text on. Like, how did you come to the decision to use your design in that way? Yeah, so I guess um, I spent about a year and a half to two years thinking about what I could do and, and everything that I came up with. I mean, before doing graphic design, I did illustration. So I'm a very, very visual person. So I wanted to find a way to use visuals, to use drawings, to be able to communicate what I was experiencing. But it, it slowly, I guess, I came to the realization that actually what was the strongest, most impactful way of communicating what it was experiencing there was literally just writing the conversations that I'd had with people there. Um, and there was the reason why the designer is so simple is because for me, I mean, there is already so many images that go, that come to mind when we think of refugees, when we think of people crossing the channel, dinghies, refugee crisis, all of it. We're so oversaturated of all these images that are usually really traumatic. And I wanted to completely move away from that and show a really different side of what is experiencing there. Because what I was experiencing there was the day to day, was the people commenting on how like the food wasn't spicy enough, or it was about how they didn't want a black sweater, but they wanted a dark blue one, or how they missed their mom, or how their phone didn't work, or how the Wi-Fi was shit. It was all about those conversations that I didn't see them in, in mainstream media. I didn't see them kind of obviously used by politicians or any of that. So that's why the design was so um, kind of straight back because I always wanted those words to be the most important focus. Um, and also I think what's important to mention is that I always knew when I was coming up with the idea is that I wanted them to live on the streets um, and I wanted them to be pasted up because for me that was like cheap and easy and I didn't have to go through any process or anyone or any censorship or curator or whatever to be able to put mm -hmm. them up. So it also came logical that if it was going to be in like, you know, pasted on walls where there's already so many things pasted or brick walls, there's already a lot of texture and color. It was just a way to create something that hopefully would grasp people's attention in a, in a different way. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, and I guess it feels and it sounds very like calculated. And it was like, I, I, I spent a lot of time testing things out and trying different things out because I, I felt a lot of pressure in, that I was putting on myself in, in terms of wanting to really like be respectful with what I was doing towards the community that I was sharing the conversation that I had with. But at the same time, I think for me, this was like the most natural way of communicating what I was feeling because it was literally the conversation that I had. There was nothing else mm. to it. Like mm. that was the most straightforward mm. thing I could do. And sometimes I think as designers, we try and like really go around things and really conceptualize and really try and really complicate things when actually sometimes the most simple solution is just like, what Straight is the most the obvious point. one? Yeah, I think yeah. so. So that's, that's how it, it came about. 
Yeah, I think like what you were mentioning about, you know, these images in the media that we get when we think of refugees or migrants, it's not just that it's oversaturated, but I think to a certain extent, people have also been very desensitized to it, you know? They're so used to seeing migrants on little lifeboats trying to cross, things like that. But what I really, like, what I love about your project is that honestly, every single time one of your posts comes up on my feed, it just hits me in the gut, you know? It's so hard to, like, step away from it. But I love the fact that every single one, you're, the you that you're addressing, obviously you're ta- you're referring to the migrant or the refugee that you were in conversation with, but the fact that you're addressing your audience as the you, I feel that it really pushes people to empathize, you know, to like, now mm. you're the, imagine you were in that situation. Was that in any way a conscious decision? Yeah, so I think again, it comes, it's, it's back to, I think, well, yes, it was conscious, but it also came very naturally because the conversation started um as ones that I'd had so obviously those were written in first person and I think that's something that I always say like I've been sometimes like described in interviews or blogs whatever as like the designer that gave a voice to refugees which is the worst thing like it makes me Mm. so pissed off because that's like the opposite of what I'm trying to do yeah um because it's exactly that it's saying I have no idea what the refugee experience is and I will I mean I don't know if I will never know because we don't know where the world is going but I I have no idea what it's like all I know is a tiny tiny little glimpse of someone's story that they chose to share with me or that they 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 Mm -hmm. said and that's very different to giving a voice because I'm it's 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 my own perspective there's a bias that comes with that that it's a hundred percent coming from me as the Mm -hmm. position of the volunteer um Mm -hmm. So I think that's very important. So that's why it came naturally to, to have it as the I for the volunteer and the you um, as the migrant or, or the displaced person. But then absolutely, like I also thought this is a way to, to, to try and make people feel what it's like to be a volunteer there, because it's an experience that a lot of people haven't had. A lot of people can't have, can't, you know, it's volunteering at the end of the day is a pretty expensive thing to do like you have to be able to not work and go there like it's a huge privilege to be able to Mm. I think experience it as as a volunteer but um sorry I should clarify you don't have to pay to go to Kelly because a lot of organizations make you pay to go to volunteer please don't volunteer with any of those (laughs) obviously those are like big scams um but what I mean is obviously you have to be able to like not work take time off work yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, exactly (laughs) um don't want to give the wrong impression so I think yeah exactly was putting people in the position of the volunteer and really trying to get people to to emphasize like you said and then and then to decide what they want to do with that information because you know there's some people like you who are going to say like oh those conversations really stay with me there's some people that are going to say like oh well it is what it is there's nothing I can do and for me that's almost like that's okay I understand that and I understand there's so many issues and there's so many things that we need to be aware of and that we need to take action in order to in order to to help and to change what I believe is a pretty broken system. But I think for me, it's like, okay, at least now you're aware. At least now you've read something that is really from the ground. That is not from a journalist that comes for one day and takes photos of people in tents and doesn't even ask them for like, you know, if they're allowed. But it's, it's 
conversations from volunteers and the people that are there and really see the effects of what happens when Priti Patel is putting out new laws, you know, the, or same with the French government. It's really the people that are seeing the effects that that has on people on the day to day. So for me, that that's also really important. Um, yeah. I know, I was just going to say, because we spoke to um, the Middle East Archive as well, like a couple of months ago. And that's, again, like about showing a kind of uh, a different image of what what we're so accustomed to seeing, like with representations of the Middle East. But then, you know, similarly with you, like showing these snippets of conversation that, like you say, you, you know, the, the viewer does what they will with them. But you're there as kind of the person to uh bridge the the divide in a way and I I volunteered in Cali I think the same year as you actually although it seems oh, really no way. <laughs> it, it, it was for an embarrassingly short amount of time I was like coming back through France and I was like I must mm. go um and you you'd have had the same training initially but you know there was that there's always a meeting before you go out and meet the refugees and in it they say you will have like prejudiced views against these people whether or not like it's you know it's, it's buried or it's or it's something you think about when you're there because because of the way that the media represent these people like you are kind of conditioned to see them as us and them and I just thought wow what an amazing thing to actually you know say out loud because then the guy was like you need to don't just like push those feelings down that's really common because obviously like as people there volunteering our time if that those thoughts ever arose we think oh my god oh my god oh my god I cannot like how would that even enter my brain mm. then he was like you just need to take time for yourself discuss it with someone else or discuss it with yourself and then like get it out so for me like what you do is just another way to um show a different side to the stories that we hear and especially like on your Instagram it just says like pasting it into this the walls of our cities or something and mm. you know I, it's like you hear the whispers of these people's stories just as you walk through the streets and it's so powerful and, yeah yeah I think like that's what I always say for me it's a project that like lives on the streets before it lives on Instagram to me there's also something so important that first of all anyone and everyone can can walk kind of past it um mm. and either you're familiar with Kelly and then you get an idea of what's happening or hopefully that that helps you to to at least sparks your curiosity to wanting to know more um but also for me it's a part of like these conversations need to be part of our cities like we need to take responsibility for that and for me it's I mean, maybe this is a bit like more abstract and conceptual, <laughs> but like it's it, they're becoming part of our buildings. Like, I really believe that these stories need to be heard by anyone. And that's like one step to doing that. Um, and and the, what you mentioned about prejudice, I think, is is absolutely like so true. And I think one like an example of that, for example, is that when I came, I expected to see like all Syrians. I just thought, you know, refugee crisis, Syria, like surely I'm just going to meet Syrians. I met, well, I met one Syrian there who was a volunteer, actually. So I didn't mm. meet any refugees that were volunteers. Mm. I met people from Eritrea and Ethiopia. I honestly was didn't even know where Eritrea was before going and kind of North Africa and Sudan and all of that. And I think at first I was so confused and I was so, like you said, like, yes, yeah, so many thoughts were coming in my head. And at first I was like, how I'm so embarrassed. Like, how could I ever think this? Like, you know, obviously the media is selling a very specific story. But again, I think if you sit with your feelings and if you also share it with others, because 
we're byproducts of like the media that we're consuming, you know, the way, the reason that I, that I thought that for so long is because that's what I was being fed. So I hope that this project, I guess, acts as like an alternative media or source or archive or collection or whatever you want to call it to be able to get, like you said, a different side, a different kind of um, side to it, because I think, you know, it's I'm not saying don't engage with mainstream media about, you know, the refugee crisis, displacement, all of that. Like, absolutely not. I mean, a lot of the things are facts about what's happening and they're true. And and we I think we need to be aware of them. But there's also something about focusing on the human story of it and not just looking at the numbers and not just looking at the big tragic events. Um, And and that's a way to do that. And there's other projects that do that as well. Um, but hopefully then we can create, I guess, a more holistic um, representation of the situation that we also can't forget about because this is something that I always thought about as well. Like, you know, hopefully one day like this won't happen anymore. Like there won't be a so-called jungle in Calais. There won't be a refugee camp there. Like that is obviously the goal. And this project, like I always say, if this project is continuing, it's not a good sign because the mm-hmm. conversations that are now getting submitted by volunteers and volunteers that are there now, they're from this week. Mm-hmm. That's not good. Like that means that mm-hmm. the system is continuing and that people are still there and the kind of it, the atrocities are still going on and the injustice. So even if hopefully one day this project stops because the, the situation stops, then we still have this archive and we still don't forget because I think for me, that's also a lot about, um, I guess maybe also like the project you mentioned about the Middle East, like also creating an archive of things that happened in the past. Like we need to, we can't forget about those things. Like we can't, even if suddenly tomorrow morning, which is never going to happen, but the home office decides to come up with a whole new plan. We still can't forget the like 30, 50, 60, hundred years that they've done to people, usually from countries that they've colonized. Um, so I think that's also what I find really important. Like, you, I refuse to like let it be unknown, and that that's was one of the reasons as well where when I thought um, about why I wanted to do a project about Kelly. Um, yeah, you mentioned in the beginning that it was dismantled in 2016. So what what did that exactly look like? Like what was it before, and how is it now? Yeah, so before 2016, um, it was uh, basically there was, so the location hasn't changed. So it's all kind of in Calais and Constant, which is in the north of France, so right across from the channel. Um, and there used to be a huge camp, basically. The authorities allowed for people to create a camp. So with tents, so there used to be like, obviously made up of tents and very kind of precarious and dangerous um, kind of situation to live in and obviously not how people should live. But there was, you know, there was people were starting businesses, were starting cafes, there was a church, a mosque, there was a school, there was, you know, places for people to come together. People had built a gym out of kind of leftover like pallets and tents and all of that. So there was a big space where a lot of people were, thousands of people, I mean, and people were able to create a sense of community because it, 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 came, it became kind of like a city. So not a city, I shouldn't say that, but I guess just like a camp that we're more familiar with in, in, in other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, 
After that, the authorities, the French authorities decided that it was getting out of hand and that too many people were coming because obviously people were coming, but, um, you know, they could see that you could live there for a while if you if you wanted to, even though, of course, in horrible um, kind of yeah horrible situation, but you could. So obviously more people were coming. Um, they decided it was too much and they bulldozered everything and took everything down and made the kind of jungle like a green. It's now like a fenced off green space where it's supposedly like a natural reserve. Um, so actually, it's quite interesting if you go on Google Maps and, you know, on Google Maps, when you go on satellite, you can see like the years um, before, like you can see kind of how it is now as street view, how it was years ago and years ago. So you can see the, um, the process of that. Um, I always think it's, it's super interesting. Um, and it's crazy and then, to think that they probably justified it by saying, oh, environmentally friendly, natural yeah, yeah. reserve. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We need to introduce some birds, blah, blah, blah. Classic. Oh, my God. So, so they decided and there was actually also, I should mention, a lot of tension with the local community because mm. obviously this adds a stress on any community. And I, I think there's a like I also don't want to kind of make the people of Calais look like the devil, because to me, that's not right either. Like that is a stress for any community to have kind of this influx of people who are there and who are, you know, barely surviving um mm. so for me it's absolutely like political and kind of the systems it's it's not I don't really blame like the the people of Kelly um so yeah they took it down and since then it's been that there's way less people there because the it's it's very difficult to survive because people are literally just putting up tents under motorways on the side of yeah the highway um where there's any green space but they've pretty much fenced off like any green space that you could access um so it's yeah really really small groups of people so sometimes you have kind of communities that are just like 50 people that are just kind of in a space and then what happens is what is continuously happening um is a process of eviction so the french police will come and will take every people like everyone's belongings tents clothes whatever it is pans pots everything they have and tell them to leave this process is obviously just an endless process of people losing everything walking away coming back at night it usually happens like in the early hours of the morning coming back waiting for organizations to bring tents out again and then going again and again and again it's the most useless and stupid process and it's obviously not kind of doing anything apart from creating you know so much trauma because I mean Mm -hmm. you get some evictions are relatively I don't want to say peaceful but kind of I guess just asking people to leave where some you know people throw I mean police throw tear gas and are extremely violent Mm -hmm. so there's there's uh both so yeah the situation now is really precarious because it's it's really difficult for people to be able to stay um, what has also changed a lot is um, the, the crossing. So the, the crossing is getting harder and harder because the border control is getting um, kind of stricter and stricter, both on the French coast and on the British coast. Um, so people are taking more risks. People are either paying smugglers to go buy dinghies. They pay thousands of pounds to, to try and get through. Um, or they go at 
try and get at the back of lorries, um, but that's getting harder and harder because the technology to be able to scan lorries and to see if there's people with like human heat is getting better and better um, or more efficient. Um, under the Eurostar, attached to the Eurostar, attached to cars, hiding in, in kind of any, any way possible. So because there's a lack of safe routes, people are obviously taking more and more risks. That's also why the demographic has changed quite a lot. Um, Mostly it's young men. There are some families and women are there. But as you can imagine, living in those circumstances with a child is close to impossible. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's horrible. COVID obviously hasn't helped because organizations have had, had so many kind of um, restrictions and so many difficulties in being able to operate in the way that they usually do. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, we'll see now we're waiting for in the UK for a new um, immigration border policy to to mm. be announced. I'm not hopeful. I don't think anyone is, <laughs> but um, that will kind of show. And I mean, if, if we're looking at what happened this week and what's happening with how many um, Afghans the UK wants to to welcome into the UK, I think we get an idea of um what 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 our politicians want to do or want to not do um so yeah it's not a great situation um but it but it's changed mostly in size and numbers that's the biggest thing that was a very very long way of explaining that I apologize no but I think that was necessary because obviously some people are familiar with it but there's a I think there's a lot more people who don't know what it's like on the ground what the day to day of it is and honestly, like hearing the way that you described it, it reminded me a lot of like the Palestinian refugee shelters, the uh, refugee camps that were set up 70 years ago. Yeah. Like, you know, they started off with tents and, you know, now maybe they have like little bits of metal. That's the roof and like bricks, like these tiny houses. And, you know, that's been going on for 70 years. And it's just... Mm. It's crazy to think of like how many people there are that are just like living in limbo, you know, no way forward, no way back. Yeah. And, and yeah, people, and that's actually yeah. a really important, I think you bring up a really good point that I um that I should mention. But I think what's important to remember is that also Calais is a transitionary space. So people that are in Calais are trying to get to the UK. Like no one stays in Calais. No one is trying to, I mean, some people do apply for French asylum, but usually they don't come to Calais because they know how awful it is there. So if mm -hmm. you are in Calais or Northern France, it is to try and get to the UK. So that means that it's, it's a constant kind of rotation of people um, and people, as I say, like try every night, which means that they try and cross the channel every single night mm -hmm. yeah um but that means that also you're not able to create this kind of sense of community or this these this these camps that that are horrific but that in a way are, are holding people together for a long time right like none of this happens which is why it's also so difficult for organizations to like operate because you could be like, you know, distributing food in one place and then suddenly the police fences are down and then you move to another space and then that space gets mm -hmm. taken down. And then it's like that content, constant need to adapt to like a very, very difficult situation um, mm -hmm. is both so difficult for organizations to operate in, but also obviously for people to live um, and obviously carry trauma from the whole experience, evidently. Mm -hmm. 
Um, How have you like felt the waves of what's happening in Afghanistan within the conversations you've been receiving recently? I don't know. I mean, I I think one thing that comes to mind is for me like um, it's a moment in the media. Like we, I think people are still very much waiting for a big thing to happen, like what's happening in Afghanistan right now. And in two weeks ago, are we still going to be talking about this? Um, are we still going to be fighting for Afghans or, or other people to, to be able to be led into the country, right? Like, yes, if this is what people kind of, if this is your way into the conversation, then then I'm glad that that you needed this kind of shock, I guess, to be able to, to, to come to terms and to try and start understanding what's happening. But we can't rely on these big, huge moments to happen that are destroying so many lives. And we need mm-hmm. to, to really engage with a bigger conversation. Like, great if the UK is able to, you know, also let people in, but then are we sending people back? Are we deporting people back to Afghanistan? Because until a few months ago, Kabul was seen as a safe city, I'm not saying that it, that it wasn't or that, you know, people shouldn't be sent back. But for example, I shared a conversation that I posted two years ago um, in 2019 of um, a young man that says that, you know, he came to um, he was he came to, to London when he was a child and he doesn't even remember um, living in Kabul. He kind of committed a very, very small um, offense and I think he stole something and he was deported back to Kabul and he, he he had never been had you know he had never even been to that city he wasn't even from there and he was just sent there and then had and started a journey straight back as a refugee obviously to come back to the UK mm. so th- this is not new obviously what yeah. is happening is 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 different and I'm, I'm I'm not saying like it's not and we need to be paying attention to right now but we can't continue like this is history repeating itself. And if it's not in Afghanistan, then it'll be somewhere else. Like we've seen what's happening in, to Palestinian. We've seen what's happening in Lebanon. We've seen what's happening in Syria. We've seen what's happening in how Turkey is taking so many refugees and how they, they can't physically take more. I mean, we're seeing it again and again, and it's not only in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess we do need these bone moments to remind ourselves, but I, I hope this is the last one because like we can't continue yeah. this way, right? Like we need to to change something. Um, so those are my main thoughts on it. Uh, but I'm not I'm obviously not an expert on on the situation. Um, but that's kind of how I think it relates to the broad of conversation of like displacement and the change in politics that we need to have um, here what you were saying about um, displacement and everything and how it's covered in the media, it kind of made me think about the situation in Germany, where obviously, you know, Germany was the first country to take in Syrian refugees, and they did quite well with that. But I remember, like, at the time when Merkel was making her speeches and everything, everything, the way that it was framed, it was all about, you know, these people need us, they need our help, they need blah, blah, blah. Whereas in reality, yes, okay, of course, these Syrian refugees needed the assistance of Germany. But at the same time, Germany needed them as much as they needed Germany, you know. Like Germany is known to be an aging population. They don't have nowhere near enough of a workforce to like keep Mm. their industries going. And I feel like if it had been framed differently in the media, you know, there would have been way less backlash from the German population against 
these people who you know had were forced to leave their homes because of war and yeah i think obviously like the media is 100% to blame and yeah it is i think we we really have to be wary the next few months with what's happening in afghanistan how the media is going to frame it how quickly it might die out why why they would bring it up like you know yeah absolutely um i'm not too familiar with um kind of germany and merkel and and kind of the strategy that they've used but i'm sure it's a very similar one to yeah. to other countries in europe mm-hmm. i think i completely agree with you i think there's two things that i thought of when you were speaking is um that also brings a really dangerous narrative of the white savior that comes in and obviously needs to save all of um these people from the middle east or africa or or wherever it is yeah. um so that's obviously like a really dangerous rhetoric and it's used so much by politicians in kind of like a sneaky way mm-hmm. um but i think agreed we have to be so conscious of that i mean I've seen it now like you know there was a viral that photo that went last week of like a baby in Afghanistan being held up to like an American soldier to be taken across the border horrific absolutely like horrible I'm not denying that but again right we're saying like oh my god we need to save this poor baby if yeah. that had also been a full grown man would we have re- reacted in the same way yeah. I personally yeah. don't think so Yeah. So it's that as well, you know, yeah. and I see it so much about Kelly. People always ask me, where are the women? Where are the children? Yeah, yeah, Because that's so much easier to empathize. Yeah. If we're sharing that's a photo I... of a dinghy with black middle-aged men, it's yeah. a very, very, very different yeah. conversation and reaction that people are having. Yeah. So that's... That's also yeah. something that I find crazy. Even like with the headlines that were coming out of Afghanistan, you know, all these articles and op-eds talking about the innocent women and children. Okay, what about the innocent men? What about the civilian men that have nothing? Do they not deserve our empathy? Like, yeah. <laughs> these are also people, you know? Exactly. Then the other, I guess the other rhetoric, which is also really problematic, is the other side, right? Is when government that's are like, but these people are doctors they they they're you know so educated they're so clever they're so talented and it's like hold on a second when i came to the uk as a french citizen i wasn't asked about my qualifications i wasn't asked about all these amazing great things that i had done i was let in because because it's a european country i mean now yeah. things are changing with brexit but you know like why yeah exactly do we need to let people in just because they're victims or because they're heroes are the only, mm. are those the only two people that were letting two types of people that were letting in mm. that's the way the media is framing it and i think we need to create that nuance and this is also the danger that i always see in social media because social media thrives on black and white conversations and thrives on like extremes and opposing opinions and getting people to kind of really have very very opposing views but there's so much nuance that we need to see in this conversation and like you know i think this is something that we're not seeing for afghanistan it's also something that we weren't seeing when everything was happening in palestine like that conversation completely left mm-hmm. like we're not having that and we are not we're not able to i think engage with it anymore because it doesn't have the big crazy headlines or how we frame them because i'm not saying that things are still happening that are atrocious but i'm saying like because it's not it's not fresh it's not new it's not exciting it's not you know giving us that kind of hit 
then we're not engaging with that anymore. And that's also super problematic when it comes with photography. Like, did we need to see a baby? And I mean, being passed on by his mother, given away to be able to react. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us were, are, mm-hmm. sorry. And again, I think it's important to think it's not, I, again, I think the media is the problem. I think the system is the problem because we're fed so much all the time that of course we stop reacting. It makes sense. I'm, I'm not blaming the individual. I'm blaming a system that is constantly trying to make money of also traumatic stories. At the end of the day, the media is a business industry. Like they're going to get more clicks if it's a photo of a child dying on a beach like we have seen. Yeah. But we're, we're not going to get that when it's just um, some men saying that they want to come because they are fleeing, you know, they're not safe in, in the country where they're from. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's complicated, but I think it, it, the conversations need to happen. And that's why I always say, like, the, the most important thing that an individual can do for me is to talk to the people around you and to have these conversations with the people around you. Because one thing is sharing an infographic or a carousel, whatever it is on Instagram, but having actual conversations with people around you, those people are ready to respect you. They already trust you. They already listen to you. You already have that, you know, that's where you can really, I think, have an impact um, and slowly, hopefully have a change of mindset. Um, Because like you said, right, like Germany, you know, they let loads of people in great, but then once people are in, but then they're getting harassed or like you know they're not getting welcomed by by germans and by germany then mm. that's also super like what's the point then very, like we don't yeah want people- that's also very traumatic like these are people who nobody nobody chooses to leave their home their community their place where they have the root willingly like to go to another country to be harassed to be yeah for people to be racist for people to hate crime you nobody does that willingly like nobody chooses that life you know no and I mean people don't usually want to come here anyways even if you tell them you get asylum straight away let's say that was the case that's the last choice like that's because people have tried every single thing they can to stay in their country like exactly we're the worst option and we are making it hell Mm. um so that's yeah you're right that's also super important like this is not people's ideal scenario like no (laughs) one wants to claim asylum like it's awful Mm. um but i even that even that goes back even that can be tied to the media and the way that they you know frame displaced persons you know they're they're coming do we have enough funding to support these people they're coming to cash their benefit checks and do nothing blah 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 and i can't help but be reminded this meg this was a sticker that was in the hyde park book club toilet and i remember every time i would go to pee it would just be staring back at me and it just (laughs) said your enemy does not arrive by boat he arrives by limousine and obviously yeah like class struggles all these politicians but it's and it also like perpetuates this idea of like Britain is the best because like all these people wanting to come to us like we don't want like we're gonna have to like push them away we don't want them but they're coming nevertheless and they come by boat and it's just like this manipulation of of what's actually happening because like you say yeah no one wants to come and like like statistics show that people go to seek refuge in the countries most close to their country isn't it Um, yeah because let's also not forget about the journey like the journey to get to Calais for example if you're coming from Afghanistan it's horrendous and is 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 you're risking your life like every single day like 
that's something else as well. Like, I think it's so important to remember that people carry so much with them um, in, in order to, to come here. And to me, it seems absolutely insane that you would then make it hell for someone here once they've mm-hmm. obviously gone through, um, yeah, through all of that. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah, crazy. Um, but here we are. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think the, like the posts, the posters that you do, the ones that really get to me are always the ones where the person is talking about home or like what home was like for them or what's different. Those ones mm-hmm. are just, yeah yeah definitely it's funny people no go ahead go ahead no I was just gonna say about because before we started recording we were talking about how you can download um the conversations from Calais posters and put them in your own towns and that is something that we can all do really quick you know because I think often like I've had so many conversations with friends who just feel like I feel so moved and so frustrated and like how can I actually act and make a difference and I think often like like Karma you were saying with Palestine how important it was for you that people were sharing on Instagram and we're just like creating this kind of constant conversation around it and I suppose that's another palpable thing you can do you can go and download it and start conversations in your own towns and local spaces um so that's a really great thing I think we should all go do that after listening to this podcast yeah absolutely and I saw a quote like right before um we started chatting um about I mean it was more related to the climate movement but I still think it's it's so relevant I'm just gonna check it because I don't want to say the wrong thing um it's also so simple so it's a bit embarrassing that I don't remember but it just says we need everyone to do anything like we have we have passed the point where you you don't have to do anything or that you can afford to do new to do much like there is a role for anyone I think in any movement First of all, I believe that anyways, all movements like environmental justice and social justice, we're seeing displacement is increasing insanely because of the climate emergency mm-hmm. that we're in, because of, you know, it's all related, but that's a different conversation. I think it's important to remember, like, no matter what your skills are, if you have an audience on social media, use that. If you are, you know, part of a school, do a talk in your school if you want to print out posters print out posters if like there's so much that people can do you can do anything no matter what your interest is what your skill is there's organizations there is community groups there's like churches mosques like in those spaces there's so many groups like there is literally I'm so tired of people saying they don't know what to do to help like I started saying I'm sorry this is a bullshit excuse like you you must that for me just says you haven't put the time and energy to look for a way to help because I'm sorry but there are ways to help like fundraise money go on a cycle like if you're like I I don't want to engage with people that's also fine because I understand like you know not everyone wants to be part of a community group absolutely if like fundraising money is your thing then fundraise money like that's not the solution but right now it's needed like people are starving we we need to continue that to a certain extent so find anything like find anything and if you really can't find anything like come to me or come to anyone who's doing something and I'm sure they can find you something to do and you don't need to spend hours you know you can do two hours an evening you can volunteer online now you can teach people English you can teach people other languages like 
we, you can do anything and we all need to do something because I just think like it's it's depressing but at the end of the day we're seeing what the politicians are doing it's not really going in the direction that is needed so mm. we might I think that's why we need to work grassroots and we need to work with movements and we need to work um with people and if you want to go to Calais go to Calais that's I think super important even if it's for a day I think you're still seeing what's happening there um I think it's very hard to forget maybe you feel the same way and to kind of look away after you've been um but you don't have to go to Calais you, there's refugees and displaced people communities everywhere um mm-hmm. so yeah that's my take on like you there you're right there's so many ways to to do things um and people just yeah I think have to start making a priority get a buff their asses <laughs> yeah yeah I think so. And I mean, you're doing it with this, right? Like if you're, you are sharing through a podcast, like giving me this platform to share this is, is, you know, a way that you're this week, you're doing something to help that conversation. Like doesn't need to be so far off from what you're good at doing. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, we appreciate you so much for sitting down with us and not only for that, but for carrying these stories with you and for sharing yeah. it with the world. No, thank you for for reading them and and sharing them as well. Like it's a, I'm a very small drop. Like we need, you know, it's a huge whole movement. Um, so yeah, but thank you for having me. It's been really lovely. Um, and it's good to know that there are people on the day to day and weeks like this when all this stuff has been happening in Afghanistan. It's good to know that there are people that are willing to have um conversations about it so yeah thank you (laughs) and we will be sure to you know put up posters in berlin and oslo street yeah (laughs) (laughs) you probably are gonna have different reactions from like yeah i was about to say (laughs) (laughs) we hope that this conversation left you as inspired as it left us please head on over to Matilda's website, www.conversationsfromcalais.com in order to find out how you could get personally involved by putting up posters in your own city. The posters have been translated to many different languages and they've been made extremely accessible to all. As many of you know, the collective entails many different projects. And in order to bring them all together, we've chosen one overarching theme that we will be focusing on for the next few weeks. Our first theme will be the art of storytelling. We will be exploring why people choose to tell their stories the way that they do. We'll be doing this by interviewing filmmakers, photographers, artists, um, hosting workshops on the journalistic process, as well as hosting a joint book club with Noor magazine. We will be reading When We Were Arabs by Masoud Hayoun, an autobiographical account of his grandparents' lives. Through personal anecdotes, Hayoun explores Arab identity and Jewish identity, and he takes us back to a time when these two were not considered binaries. To sign up, please visit theinbetweencollective.net or newermagazine.com. We look forward to having you. We'll also be sharing the stories of our very own collective members as we start releasing the pictures from the film cameras that we sent around the world, door to door, from member to member, our collective photography project. Head on over to our website, theinbetweencollective.net, 
or find us on Instagram at InBetweenCollective. We look forward to your involvement and can't wait for you to hear the next podcast.